Good morning, Grace Chapel. Thank you, worship team. Let's be praying for those who are traveling and praying for those who are sick and ill during uh, this time. I guess there's a lot of allergies going around. Is that, that's what I hear? Great, great. Yeah, and everybody's like uh, up on that. Um, I've avoided it to this point, so that's a, that's a blessing for me and terrible for you. So sorry about that. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of special days that we commemorate uh, as, as people uh, across the face of this earth that are celebrated each year. There are national holidays in every nation. Uh, you all have birthdays, right? Right? And some of you celebrate them. Some of you try to avoid them. There are anniversaries. There's all kinds of special stuff. So what would you say is the most important non-religious event for you every year? This is interactive time. This is where you get to call out. And he, and, what's that? Fourth of July. Yeah, that's a good one. Christmas. That, that's. I said non. Ruth, was that you? Ruth and Phil have been gone for a number of months. She's back. Uh, just one. Great. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Should I start all over again? There are a lot of special... No. Non-religious events. Birthdays. Okay. Your birthday? Sure. Why not? Yeah. What is the most important religious event for you? There you go. Very good. Christmas. Easter. Okay. For Jews... We've looked at a lot of the events as we've gone through the Gospel of John together that they celebrate, and they're, they're, there's a lot of them. A lot of them coincide with harvests, festivals, those sorts of things. But for the Jews, Passover, you're all familiar with Passover? It was one of the most important religious events. It was actually a festival that went over a lot of days. It wasn't just one day. And it was a time when they remembered how God had delivered them from slavery, from... Uh, being in bondage in, in the land of Egypt hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ's time. And how did that whole thing go down? How did it happen? Well, the lamb was sacrificed by each family household, and its blood was painted over the doorposts of that particular household's home. And then the angel of death passed over their home, thus Passover, and their firstborn was not taken. And that was the that's the, that broke the will of Pharaoh. That was the 10th plague. And he said, okay, go. <laughs> Just please leave. Because all the firstborn of uh, males in the land and also animals all, all died. And every Passover, since that salvation event, each Jewish household on that day, each year, would kill and eat a lamb to remember freedom. Freedom. Easter replaces Passover for every one of us who knows Jesus Christ as a Savior. Easter. Jesus sure changes everything. He didn't change the holiday. Uh, Jesus replaces. Jesus fulfills. Jesus changes a lot of things about what we do, why we do it, and how we even view it. And Jesus is the most influential person who has ever walked the face of this planet. But many people today, as I listen, and probably you're, you're totally aware and you're listening too, many people today only know a Jesus who they've constructed 
out of their own observations, their own opinions, probably a movie or a book or two, and something somebody posted on Facebook. John's whole purpose, the reason we're going through the gospel together, John's whole purpose in writing this gospel account is to present to you and I, anybody who reads this gospel, the real Jesus. And in chapter 12, where we are today, it's getting very real. It's Palm Sunday. And the whole reason why God the Father sent God the Son is just days away. First, I want to give you the backstory to Palm Sunday before we look at the triumphal entry. It's in chapter 11, verse 55 through 12, 11. I'm not going to read that because I'm assuming that you have. <laughs> I know, big assumption. Jesus has just raised his friend Lazarus from death. Lazarus had not only died, he'd been buried like four days. And now, when you read the account that John gives us right before the trumpet entry, actually a day before, Lazarus is alive. And he's sitting with Jesus having a meal. And they've got a bunch of guys in the house, and they're all eating, lounging around. And other than the fact that there's a recently dead man eating dinner with some friends, it's a pretty normal scene. <laughs> you can imagine, it's like, when you were eating there, would you be looking at him? Like, you'd be like watching him? Oh, my God. I mean, like, how do, you, how do you process that? So while they're lounging around, Lazarus' sister, Mary, she anoints Jesus with some very, very expensive perfume. And Judas, the Iscariot, he sees a profit opportunity for himself because John has just told us previously he's a thief. And he feigns compassion for the poor, complaining that they should have sold it all and given it to the poor. Jesus points out immediately that what Mary is doing is a worshipful act in anticipation of his coming death and resurrection, which, of course, has escaped their concepts. They, 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 they don't, haven't clued in yet. But Mary, as you read the accounts in the other Gospels about here, she seems to be someone who was always wanting to hear and listen at Jesus' feet. And she listened carefully. And it seems that she had a sense of his impending death because he's probably teaching and preaching. Well, he has been teaching and preaching this. And she wanted to show her love and gratitude for him while he's still alive, not to mention the fact that he's just raised her brother from the dead. Now Palm Sunday. That's the backstory. Now Palm Sunday. And in chapter 12, verse 12, it starts off. And we read, the next day, so this is the day after that, amazing meal with Lazarus, the large crowd that had come to the feast, Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, word he was traveling ahead of him. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Remember, just days ago, Jesus, who had already been making a name for himself through all these spectacular miracles, teaching and, and doing all these signs and wonders and having run-ins with the Jewish authorities, had raised Lazarus from the dead. Don't forget that, because many in Jerusalem had made the trip to Bethany, which was not that far away, to see if it was actually true, to go see this guy. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, that's another word for Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first. Remember, John is one of these disciples. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him in the Old Testament and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. This is true. Everybody, this is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead, and that's Lazarus, alive and walking. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him out of Jerusalem like a gunshot was that they heard that he had done this sign, raised a man from the dead. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you you are gaining nothing? All this stuff that we're doing is not helping, helping, helping at all. Look, the world has gone after him. Big exaggeration. So this is absolutely a train wreck for the religious men in charge. All right? They are watching, visualizing their worst nightmares come true. Because the, the Jewish people, they, they were fiercely independent, always had been. They had a history of uprisings and revolts and throwing out foreign rulers. And now packed into Jerusalem for this amazing festival and all the surrounding area, the estimates are that there were about two and a half million people there for this affair. And two million of them didn't live there, but had come from, left their homes and made the pilgrimage to be present in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So the atmosphere, you you can feel it, right? The atmosphere is white hot with expectation. And to cap it all, everybody is talking about this new teacher who goes by the name of Jesus of Galilee, this miracle worker who had been performing some pretty incredible signs and wonders. Could he be the rescuer that God has promised? Could this be the time during this amazing Passover which recalls the freedom we were given and from God and delivered from Egyptian oppression, could this be when the revolt begins and we see Rome evicted? And then a cry goes up. He's coming. He's on his way. So you've got this great crowd of pilgrims rushing out of Jerusalem to greet Jesus, and they are met by another great crowd who has been following him and gathering momentum and followers as they've come from Bethany to Jerusalem where he'd been staying. And the two crowds converge on each other and the excitement escalates and the expectations skyrocket. What did the crowd do when they got together? What did they do? Okay, they were singing and... Okay, come over here. What did they do? They waved palm branches. Exactly. That's why we, yeah. Why palm branches? Well, because they grow in the vicinity, Pete. No, no. why palm branches? So that we could have Palm Sunday later on in, in history. No, because palm branches had become this symbol of Jewish nationalism over the years. Palm branches were waved for previous Jewish fighters, especially um, Simon the Maccabee, who uh, delivered them from the occupying Syrian forces. They waved all these palm branches. Um, In other words, palm branches represent nationalist hope. Hope. Palm branches are just like you and I waving an American flag. 
It's the same thing. The home of the brave, the land of the free, the crowd hoped and were celebrating that Jesus, could he be the one who's going to deliver us from the Roman Empire? And they also, somebody also mentioned it, they praised, they sang songs. And we have one of those recorded, and in the other Gospels, you, you find some other words that go along with this, but John records, listen to the words that, that they, they used. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. First of all, let's break it down. Hosanna. It's, it's not just some empty hurrah, praise him, if that's not what Hosanna is. It literally means save us now. It would, it would fit well into a Ukrainian chant today. Save us now from the oppressors. And in the context of what was going down here, the save us now was a clear reference to salvation from Roman occupation because that's what was ailing them. That was the big problem. At least, if I'm in power in Jerusalem, in any kind of power, and I hear this cry, Hosanna, for this guy, or I hear the report about it. You know what's going on outside of Jerusalem right now? I'm calling out the heavy artillery. I'm escalating my response team to code red. <laughs> Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is the next part. This is a direct quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a beautiful hymn, and it was sung in the temple in Jerusalem every morning. So the Jews understood it to refer to the coming Messiah who would rescue his people and provide salvation. So obviously, right, the crowd identifies Jesus as the conquering hero, the Messiah, the one that they've been looking for. And just so nobody misses the point, the crowd makes up another phrase. The crowd adds the words, even the king of Israel, which is not a quote from any part of the Bible. It's a clear indicator, though, that they regard that Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord, is the guy. He's the king who's going to save us from the oppressor. You know, people today in our country, in our communities, maybe in your family, definitely in the entire world, are a lot like these Jews. We really are. This crowd wrongly assumed that Jesus came to be a political deliverer, to rescue them from the present struggles of this life. But who doesn't want that? Right. Nobody put their hand up. Good. We, we, we all want to be rescued from the physical things that ail us. Today, people also assume, like them, that you come to Jesus you accept Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you invite Jesus into your heart to be delivered. What's the message? To be delivered from what? All that physically ails you. To be delivered from debt, <laughs> a bad marriage. You fill in the blank. Whatever it is that's ailing you today, fill it in, come to Jesus, boom, done. Isn't that wonderful? That's the message. Can God deliver financially and physically. All God's people said, amen. Or yes, yes, however you like it. Can God defeat physical enemies? Absolutely, of course he can. And in his mercy, he often does. At least that's my testimony. Is it yours? 
But it's not the primary reason Jesus died on the cross. We all desperately need deliverance from eternal death. It's way bigger than the stuff that's going on in my life today and in my family. Eternal death from the just sentence declared by a just God on every one of us. It would seem that the disciples thought that as well. Because John tells us that they didn't understand, and specifically they didn't understand, why did you choose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? I mean, he, he, we don't get the background to this, but it's, it's got to be like, they must have said to each other, why, is he, why, why a donkey? You know, why did he have us go you know, steal one from the Roman garrison and get this big white horse? You know? A white stallion would have been way more appropriate We're told by John, who was one of those disciples, that it was only later that they realized that what Jesus was doing by riding in on this colt, this donkey, was precisely what God had planned should happen. And then they remembered the words of Zechariah 9.9, which pointed out to the mode of entry the real deliverer was going to have. See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Little wonder that the Pharisees' response to all of this was to complain to each other. What was their problem? Well, it's a problem a lot of people have. They were worried that more and more people were going to listen, actually listen, to what Jesus was teaching about the one and only, about the exclusive way to God rather than following their own version and their strict code of rules and regulations, they were losing control. And isn't that what people fear today? People fear losing control. I'd accept Jesus, but it would mean I'd have to give up a lot of other things that I like. And they say it so wonderfully in verse 19 of chapter 12. Look, the world has gone after him. Had the world gone after him? No, just a crowd outside of Jerusalem. But we all exaggerate, right? Like everybody's doing it. And they said the whole world has gone after him. And John deliberately uses the irony in their actual statement. They were, of course, exaggerating. We all do. I just exaggerated. John saw the literal truth. Because Jesus died on a cross, all hopeless, all law-breaking failures like me, like you, from everywhere on the face of this planet can be forgiven and made new. And the Pharisees wanted to imprison people. It's how you control with their own code of religion. This is the way you do it. This is the way you get in. Follow the rules. Jesus, out of amazing love and grace, came to set people free. That's the freedom. People who couldn't even begin to follow that self-defeating rule book. People in our world follow a rule book, whether they've made it up or someone else has made it up for them, and it's enslaving. And Jesus said, let me set you free from that nonsense. Jesus came to save hopeless people like you and me. Don't you find that it can be kind of cathartic to describe yourself as hopeless? 
before Jesus Christ set you free, that I was hopeless, I was lost, I was blind, I could not see. It actually feels good. Try it. Okay, forget it. You probably won't read this in any counseling or self-help book, but you'll read it in another book, the only one that really matters. Jesus immediately went on to talk about his death and through this whole last week, I guess if you were a non-Christian and a non-believer and you were reading the gospel accounts and God had not penetrated your heart yet, you could say, boy, this is a morbid piece of literature. All he's talking about is death and dying. But it's a death that's going to make possible for many people to find real forgiveness and for many people to live real life now. Jesus says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Most of those who were listening to Jesus uh, worked the land. They knew what he was talking about. Um, that you put a dead seed into the earth, and after a while you have a harvest. And that seed sprouts, and it produces a whole bunch more seeds that you can use and, and benefit from. And Jesus' death is going to produce a harvest that's going to be a harvest of souls. And it's going to include Gentiles, he says in this passage, if you take the time to read it. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. A lot like most of us in this room. Because the seed died. We get to live. But there's a question that arises, and I'm asked this by people from time to time. Maybe you are too. Maybe you have this question yourself. Why? Why did Jesus have to come? Why did Jesus have to die? And the answer comes from Jesus, and he explains to the people in verse 25, he explains that people really operate in one of two ways. Everybody, every one of us in this room, we're either, can't sit on the fence on this, it's either one or the other. And he said, whoever loves his life, you've heard this before, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is describing the choice that you and I have to make every day we wake up and then countless times throughout the day. Whether our passion, what, what makes us tick, is for what we can get out of this life for ourselves, whoever loves his life, or is it to live under God's rule, God's freedom, whoever hates his life in this world. And he's not using the words hate and love in their absolute sense, but Jesus is pointing out that our motivation, your motivation, my motivation to live the way I live will be focused on one of these two ways. And Jesus had to die to make the choice of losing my life even possible. Jesus had to die for eternal life to even be an option for me, to be found, to rescue and redeem all the lost failures. Jesus had to go to the cross. That's why. <laughs> it's a big answer. You see, a, a Jew, how did a Jew take care of someone deserving capital punishment in that day and age and before? Anybody know? Starts with an S. Stoning, yes. A Jew was normally stoned to death. Oh, so gruesome. And it was done by his own community, his neighbors. It was brutal. 
And Jesus knows that he's facing a different form of cruelty that lay ahead for him. And he says in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. God's eternal justice for your sin and my sin was going to be vindicated on the cross. In verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast down. No one can ever say, and if they do, they haven't read the text. No one can ever say that God turned a blind eye to sin and rebellion. The cross was the great revelation that God hates sin, that God will deal with sin severely, but at his own expense. And this is the mind-boggling thing about grace. He's not going to deal with it rightfully and have you and I pay. It's going to be at his own expense. It was at his own expense. The cross also, Jesus says, deals this devastating blow to the one who had controlled, cheated, and conned the lives of people down through the ages. The king was coming, and there on the cross he would break the power of sin. He would break the power of the fear of Satan that he had used to imprison the world for thousands of years. Is Satan still alive and well? What do you think? He's still cheating. He's still conning us. He's sly. And his lives sometimes are pretty believable. He's conning the lives of people today with the little time that he has left. But the king is coming again. Amen? And he will visibly break these supposed powers control as they feign to rule this planet. The offer of this so great a salvation, though, is conditional. It's time limited. I think we forget this. There will be a time when God will no longer convict. There will be a time when his voice of grace and mercy will cease to call out, and it will grow silent. And Jesus refers to this in a very one, amazing object lesson. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. Do you notice what Jesus did next, if you've read this passage? Having spoken to them, he then acted out the words. He gave them an object lesson of what he had just said, verse 36. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. There can be nothing more terrifying than not being able to find Jesus. Nothing to fear more than Jesus hiding his grace and his mercy from you. So, what's your response to King Jesus? Those of you who don't know him, those of you who do know him, claim to know him. Well, you might say, you know, 
this whole thing is such a mystery to me. Why doesn't he just show up and show himself, like come stand beside you, Pete, on the stage and do some amazing miracle? Look at the response of the people who saw him face to face. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. They still did not believe in him. When you read John's gospel, you can clearly see weaved throughout the whole gospel this whole theme of belief. It's central to John's purpose in writing, yet the reality was that most of the Jews that Jesus came to save who heard him and saw him did not put their trust in him. That's obvious. And isn't that the reality today? That most people do not put their trust in Jesus, at least not in him alone. It's usually no Jesus or Jesus plus a little something else. So as John summarizes Jesus Christ at least three years of public ministry, he inevitably at the end has to record the fact that the overwhelming majority did not believe in Jesus. Now, now as a believer in Jesus Christ, which I am, I'm tempted to scratch my head when I read these statements or, or to wag my finger at them and say, those bozos, what's the matter with them? How could this be? If Jesus was who he claimed to be, if Jesus proved who he claimed to be with these outstanding, miraculous signs, surely he should have had this huge following. And you can sense John's exasperation when he writes that verse in 37, and the wonder of it all is like, wow. And he's writing this 55 years after the fact, and it's still impactful that he puts it down here. And John makes clear throughout this gospel that there were thousands and thousands of other miracles that Jesus performed in plain sight in addition to the awesome ones that John has picked out to record. Yet despite what the people had seen, despite the parade of that day of the triumphal entry and all the palm flag waving, the vast majority did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They wanted a different kind of salvation. They, the salvation they wanted required a different kind of savior. They thought that this present reality that we live in, this world with all the injustice and all the oppression and all the false promises of freedom was what needed fixing. And they thought that that was way more important than the coming death debt penalty. Their future reality in the next world. Don't you see that every day? Even in our own life, sometimes I'm so concerned about the here and now and what didn't take place the way I thought it should. And I'm just like, I got, and the Holy Spirit goes up beside the head. I think he does. And I, and I go, oh, wait, does that really matter? In light of the gospel message? 
they didn't see, like many people today don't see, how closely those two realities are connected. And it wasn't as if they'd only read about this like you and I are. These miraculous, miraculous signs were actually performed before their very eyes. John says he had done so many signs before them. So just as John summarizes the response of the people to Jesus, he goes on to summarize the message of Jesus Christ to people. When you believe in Jesus, and have you? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross to pay your sin debt penalty? It means you recognize that Jesus Christ is none other than God in human flesh. The one who is eternally divine and fully human all at the same time. No, don't ask me to explain it. Verse 44, Jesus cried out. And I bet you that it was a very accurate term that John used there. Jesus cried out. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. That means that Jesus is so much more than just a good example and a wonderful um, teacher and a loving, amazing miracle worker, or even some kind of great philosopher. It means that Jesus was uniquely God's gracious plan of salvation for my sin, for your sin, for your family's sin, for your co-worker's sin, for your, your, your classmate's sin. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And John illustrates, in closing, John illustrates this truth about Jesus in a really stunning way. I love this way the uh, chapter 12 ends. In, in, in chapter 12, verse 40, he, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. And he quotes some verses to describe the rejection of people to King Jesus. Isaiah chapter 6, right? What is Isaiah chapter 6 all about? Those of you who are Old Testament students of God's word, it was the time when Isaiah the prophet was given this amazing vision and he was taken up to the temple in heaven and he saw this amazing vision of God the king on heaven's throne in his temple. It blew him away. It literally, in the Hebrew, says he melted. <laughs> and then God said, get up. So in Isaiah 6, we have this remarkable, awe-inspiring vision of Yahweh God in all his glory, and John links Yahweh God to Yahweh Jesus. It's amazing. John doesn't get much clearer than this about who Jesus is, the real Jesus. Jesus came into the world not just to reveal God, but to carry out God's rescue plan. Because this world is held captive. We, we, we need to understand that and work within that. It's held captive in the darkness of sin. It's blind. But Jesus came to save men and women from all over the face of this planet. And what is the condition of salvation, for salvation? Jesus says to us, believe in me. Would you rise with me? We're going to respond really in one of the only ways we can when we're together, and that's to worship. And we're going to sing, 
And we're going to sing together like the people did on that day Jesus came in on that colt. But I pray to our God in heaven that we sing with a much different perspective. That Jesus has died on the cross and he lives. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, the one worthy to receive our praise, the songs from our lips, but more importantly, from our very hearts and being. And Lord, we enter, as we've already prayed this morning to you, we enter this Easter season very, very mindful of the amazing opportunities we will have, especially on this Friday and on next Sunday, Easter, where people who don't come under the influence of the gospel will be. And we know that it has nothing really to do with us but to be faithful, to present your truth with love and with grace. And Lord, we pray, we cry out as one to you, Lord, open their eyes that they might see. And we pray it in Jesus' name.